I was struck by how ridiculous um, this field is in, in biomedical science, where where we are doing so much to get a paper published, you know, a peer-reviewed scientific manuscript published in, in, in a, published in a scientific journal. And I thought, how silly. Welcome to the Barbed Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Ben Bickman, PhD, a professor, researcher, entrepreneur, and author in bioenergetics. In his own words, Ben's research drives at exploring the contrasting roles of insulin and ketones as key drivers of metabolic function. Ben is also passionate about fitness, and he's become a go-to resource and expert for many athletes and institutions hoping to better understand how what we eat drives our body's responses and adaptations to training. In our conversation, we dive into Ben's research, along with what data suggests regarding some key functions of these hormones for our bodies as far as hypertrophy, muscle retention, and more. It's a great exploration regarding fitness, nutrition, and performance. Also, I want to take a second to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Ben, thanks so much for joining me today. I think something that's really important to, to focus on at the beginning is your research and education background because you know you don't just wake up with a PhD and all these research credentials. And, and I know it was very impactful in talking to you before in kind of getting you to where you are today and the things you're very passionate about today. So if you don't mind, uh, share a little bit with us about how you kind of got into this element of research, metabolism, and biological sciences. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd certainly always been interested in the body. My dad, who largely raised me and my siblings alone, um, he uh, was always very deliberate, very uh, clear in his desire to make sure we ate real food. Uh, and, and that we always took our vitamins. He would literally put our vitamins out on the table every morning as he would make the table and make breakfast for us. And he'd put the vitamins in our spoon, almost like something from a, a movie. And we knew we would take our vitamins every morning. So I'd always been interested in the body, um, involved in sports to, to the degree that I could in a very small farm town in rural Alberta. Um, uh, and then when I, when I got to college, I was, uh, it was a bit of a process like it is with most students to really find something they care about and, has the potential to provide for your a family someday. That was very important to me. Uh, and one of the worst things, pieces of advice we can give young people these days is to do something you love. That's what you do for a hobby. What you need to do is something you can do well and that will pay you. And so I um, became more and more interested in becoming a professor just because of the balance that I saw my professors have. Um, and I'd already started um, coming to the study of the body, to physiology as a, as a major. 
And then seeing my professors and then seeing that one of my professors was also an active scientist. That was such a revelation to me. I didn't know there were still people doing science with regards to the body. It's, it's shameful to say. I thought we knew everything there was to know. And I'm, I'm so glad I was wrong. It was so interesting to see what he did and how cool it was and the balance, as I said, that he had between work and family. And then I, I got a master's degree. Um, as in exercise physiology, which is what my undergraduate had been, which is just kind of a placeholder in the sciences. If you're getting a master's degree, and this might apply to other fields as well. I don't think it's a shame to admit this or shameful to admit this, but it is kind of a placeholder. It really is a degree for people who don't quite know what they want to do. Some may be offended at that, and I just think they're wrong. That's almost always the case, and it certainly was for me. And it was during my master's degree that I discovered this area of research um, with regards to inflammation-induced insulin resistance. And this was really looked at at the time as... um, fundamental because it was connecting obesity to type 2 diabetes. Uh, this was really the birth of this um, area in the, at the time it was late 90s when this work was happening. I stumbled across it in the early 2000s, but that became the trajectory for the rest of my career to this day during my PhD in bioenergetics, which was a more explicit study of energy use, the way the mitochondria work, but always with this theme of inflammation and insulin resistance. Then my postdoctoral work with Duke uh, Duke University was similar. And then when I started my own lab uh, as, as a professor and scientist 10 years ago, almost to the date, uh, the theme has persistently been mitochondrial function and the way hormones and nutrients play into this overall metabolic regulation. Well, I should say congratulations on the 10-year anniversary. I don't know if we got it to the date, but that's always a great milestone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, one month ago, it was 10 years. Yeah, We, we had our Barbend fifth anniversary recently, and I completely missed it. I woke up a week later, and I was like, wait a minute, we missed it. <laughs> so, only halfway to the decade mark. I, I got to ask, bioenergetics, it's, it's a real term, and it might be something that a lot of listeners could be hearing for the first time. It literally sounds like something out of a, out of a movie. Right, yeah. there's some alien invasion, and they bring in the bio, the bioenergetics expert to figure something out. Um, do you ever get people who just kind of say that's not a real thing? Yeah, well, no, what what more more often what happens is people can't say it. <laughs> the fact that you can get through that string of syllables um, flawlessly is in, impressive. Unfortunately, bioenergetics as a as a scientific term really pertaining to biochemistry has been misapplied or hijacked by pseudoscience, where you have people who will say, I'm a bioenergeticist, and I study the, ener- the, the, the chakra energy pathways in the human and their correlation to Lee lines on the planet. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's silly. Uh, it, it's just these ideas that there's this um, vague mysterious energy that moves through this vague, mysterious pathway in the body. And so they will invoke the term bioenergetics to refer to that. Strictly speaking, a a bioenergeticist is a scientist who is focused on energy use in a cell. And, And even that sounds more complicated than it is. It's essentially the catabolism of nutrients, so the breaking down of glucose, fats, ketones, lactate, etc., and the anabolism of other nutrients that that catabolism allows you to do. So it's, all, it's just a process of understanding metabolism, which is 
the sum of its two parts, the anabolic and the catabolic reactions. And that's all just biochemistry. So it's essentially, if someone studies bioenergetics, essentially they study nutrient metabolism with a heavy reliance on the mitochondria. I, I can I can imagine that it does get a little infuriating if people appropriate this term. This is something yeah. that you're literally uh, a, a doctor of. You've done how, how many, you know, I don't even want to ask exactly how many years of education or lab experience because it's so many. And then to see it, to see it appropriated uh, yeah. by whoever just kind of wants to label themselves as that, uh, you're a patient person to let that <laughs> to keep that fury in a little bit. Um, I should ask too because one thing I've and we we've chatted before and uh, we, we've chatted about a number of topics. Um, we both have. You're from Alberta. That's where my my grandmother's from, a rural town in Alberta. We we kind of go way back in that conversation. But I have to ask because I think it is relevant to your interest in. Um, physiology, physical activity, you kind of run in circles with a lot of athletes, a lot of people who are working toward optimizing performance, not just in the day-to-day, but in the athletic sphere. What are some, you mentioned that your career is what you do for money. Uh, what you're passionate about is, is what you do as a hobby. And I know that that kind of intersects with the fitness space for you. Talk a little bit about um, you know, your passion, maybe outside of the day job for um, fitness, physical activity, and how that might fold into what you do as a bioenergeticist. I think I got that yeah. right. Oh, you nailed it. Yeah. You got a, you're a linguist, David. boy. Yeah. So my, my personal interests, um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big question. Um, my personal interests certainly focus on fitness. Um, that, that does have a personal application. I want to be a very healthy grandpa. That's kind of my MO. Everything I'm doing right now, it is with that end in mind. I want to be a healthy grandpa because to me, family's everything. And, and I want to keep that really long-term goal in mind that what am I doing now that might compromise my ability to be a healthy, involved, capable grandpa. Um, my personal interests also uh, involve the dissemination of what I'm learning as a scientist. And this really reached ahead. It was probably five years ago or so where I um, was able to step back. So this was maybe, that was kind of my halfway point till, till this point as, a, as an independent scientist and professor. And I, I was struck by how ridiculous um, this field is in, in biomedical science where, where we are doing so much to get a paper published, mm. you know, a peer-reviewed scientific manuscript published in, 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 a, published in a scientific journal. And I thought, how silly, because only a handful of people will ever read that manuscript. Even uh, a fraction of those people will cite my work as they do their work. So it'll be kind of uh, an, an inspiration almost to a small degree for someone else to do something. And that's, that's wonderful. That's commendable. But at the end of it all, I thought, this is crazy because I'm in a field of scientists that are studying some of the most vexing problems on the world today, obesity and diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart disease, infertility. We are the guys that learn and are studying and finding answers to uh, how metabolic health is impacting these clinical outcomes. And so uh, back to my point, that was when I decided I'm going to get involved in social media and it's going to be completely about 
sharing scientific insight. There will be nothing, no, no talking about politics. And when you're a conservative in academia, you don't want to talk about politics, you know, lest you bring down the powers of all your faculty on you. Um, it wouldn't be about my family. It wouldn't be about what I have on my plate at any given moment. It would only be science, uh, scientific insight. So that's another that that is maybe to kind of wrap this up for the at the risk of going too long. That's where it starts to really come back together, where my personal interests start aligning with my professional interests, which is how can my professional pursuits turn into something that has some kind of value to to an individual. One, it could be through um, me sharing social media content, which I do very liberally and very gladly. And then it also has now started to take the form of how can I translate scientific answers into real world solutions? And that's where I've, I've really enjoyed um, venturing into the entrepreneurial realm, you know, sullying myself, as other academics might say, by being involved in the business world or the industry, um, as we might call it in academia. Uh, and, and I defend that completely. When, when you think you know something important, I, I, I think it's only logical to want to turn that into something real and practical beyond just a manuscript that's been published. Do you think you have a responsibility as a practicing and independent scientist to address misinformation or disinformation on the platforms where you're also putting out information about your own research and findings? Yes. Yes. Now, that is that is uh, a complicated thing at these days where many people are applying those terms to things perhaps sometimes inappropriately and sometimes very appropriately. But yes, just strictly speaking, within the realm of nutrition and disease, yeah, I do take it as part of my mission to highlight the errors in the consensus. When you say the, the errors in the – when you refer to the consensus, how do you determine what what that is? It's, yeah. In any, in any industry – and I know this is a tough question. I know this is not a binary. This is exactly how you do it, yes or no. But in any industry, it could be the health sciences. In strength sports, it could be for weightlifting technique, right? Sometimes the zeitgeist can get caught up in itself, right? Yeah. And it creates yeah. a flywheel of this kind of self-perpetuating – uh, you could call it opinion that becomes perceived as truth. So how do you even kind of define what that is in relation to your particular areas of expertise? Yeah, that, yeah what a great question. Uh, maybe the simplest or not even simple, maybe the most accurate way is to say that um, the, the, the governing entities that are making claims about nutrition, what are their what is the data that they base those claims on and what might be their vested interests in making those claims? This can range from the government, like the um, Department of Agriculture, uh, for example, or, or dietary councils within the government that are rec- making the food recommendations for Americans. I think they have gotten that horribly wrong and have since the inception of that um, governing body, um, telling Americans to avoid fat and to most especially avoid saturated fat, and that they must be seeking a caloric deficit um, to maintain good health or caloric balance. I think that is an idea that can never practically be reached. It can never practically be quantified. You simply cannot quantify the actual caloric load you're going to get into your body. 
you cannot accurately quantify what the calories are going to do in your body and how you're expending them. You have to account for the energy you're expending through daily living, through through um, movement and and living, and the energy you're expending through your breath in the form of ketones or your brown adipose, where you have higher uncoupling of your mitochondria. And these are all higher level ideas that I'm just putting out there just to add some color to what I'm saying. Um, but but essentially, but it goes beyond the government where you have the American Heart Association, the American, the American Cancer Society. Um, what they all have in common is the sphere of calorie and the sphere of saturated fat. And I, I totally disagree with, with that. Uh, now, I'm not saying calories don't matter. I'm just saying the insistent pursuit of caloric balance is often doomed to fail because the average individual cannot hope to, to perfectly account for calories in or calories out. Not that calories don't have a value when it comes to health, but that when people try to doggedly apply that concept of calories in, calories out, they're almost certainly doomed to fail. And I totally disagree with the fear of saturated fat. I think that has only ever been based on deeply problematic evidence and that there is significant evidence to suggest we got it that completely wrong. So uh, that, that is something I very much uh, make a deliberate effort to professionally address. And, and I consider that misinformation. And, and I, I do think it behooves those of us who, who are capable of, of reading and interpreting the data and have access to it to share that, that dissenting voice, uh, that, that there, that it's almost like we're, we're trying to very, you know, with our shrill voice, because we're one of so few, we need to say, yeah, they, these people might be wrong, and here's why we think that. Um, and, and I hope that I am, I'm able to do that diplomatically, because if I have to use a shrill voice to offset a thousand other voices, that doesn't mean I can't be polite in doing it. Well, one thing I know about you is that even when you are um, dismissing evidence that, that you find uh, just incorrect or based upon falsehoods, you're still very polite in the way you do it. And I hate to use this analogy, especially given the topic of conversation, but I guess catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Although, although we, we can, we can get into uh, we can get into that, that sugar content question in a second. So I, I will say, and, and we, we are actually, we can see each other while we're recording this folks are just listening on uh, fans of the Barbin podcast, you know, I'm glad you bring up. Uh, I'm glad you bring up the Department of Agriculture. I'm glad you bring up some of these governmental frameworks because one thing I don't see behind you is a giant food pyramid that you're constantly referencing. And I think that is kind of a very potent example these days, where for years we were hearing a lot of people in the wellness space say, "Hey, maybe this is uh, just not a." reasonable basis for anyone's diet given the the imbalance in and the just overwhelming insistence on grains and cereals in, in large serving portions. These days you criticize the food pyramid. A lot of people even in mainstream society will say like, okay, we understand and there has seems to have been a movement away from that. What are some other common misconceptions that in your opinion as a researcher, and I will say this is just one person's opinion. Um, you're not speaking for an agency or larger body here. What are some other, call them mainstream misconceptions regarding nutrition, energy, expenditure, and usage by the body um, that a lot of us have today in society? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. So off the top of my head, one I would focus on is our, our 
underappreciation of the relevance of the hormone insulin. So earlier we were talking about this caloric paradigm of health and obesity um, and, 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 you know, metabolic related diseases, which a lot of diseases fall into, including the ones we spoke about minutes ago, uh, or at least mentioned. Um, but insulin tells the body what to do with energy. That's kind of its theme. Um, and, and so there are several ways that, that insulin has been under underappreciated, if not overtly ignored. One of them is the role of insulin in telling the body to store energy, where it is absolutely impossible for the human body to store or gain fat unless the hormone insulin is elevated. It cannot happen. And I, I know that's a bold thing I'm saying, but I'm saying it. You cannot make human fat tissue or any, any animal actually expand unless insulin is elevated, full stop. It is absolutely impossible. Now, again, I'm not saying energy load or calorie number doesn't matter. It is. You have to have energy there. But unless the insulin is up to tell the body to store that energy, it can't. It just can't happen. So that's one thing that I know is very debated. And so I'm trying to be very deliberate and cautious in exactly what I'm saying. You can't make the human body store energy unless insulin is up. Now, on the lighter side of this, but very much of interest, I would imagine, to the barband audience would be the role of insulin in protein anabolism in the muscle. That is also very much misunderstood. Insulin does not promote muscle protein synthesis in the muscle. That is not true. But insulin does defend muscle protein. That's an important distinction. So rather than considering insulin as an anabolic hormone at the muscle, which it isn't, it's more accurate to consider insulin as an anti-catabolic signal at the muscle. It will defend muscle protein. This has been very well documented in in vivo studies, so living, breathing humans, where they're spiking up the insulin and detecting that it is in no way promoting an enhanced muscle protein synthesis. And it's been done at the very granular level of individual muscle cells, that when you are incubating muscle cells with the best amino acids. And, and that's you know, at a narrower level, we'd say branch chain amino acids. At an even narrower level, we'd say leucine. Um, that is going to promote muscle protein synthesis, just the presence of those, those amino acids. Insulin does not accelerate that process, but it defends the process. That's so important because as people are progressing towards insulin resistance, and the majority of adults in the United States and many, many other countries are, are in fact, they're well past that point, the average adult, uh, the, the muscle is one of the primary tissues that becomes insulin resistant. And now you're having, and that could be why in type 2 diabetes, we notice this elevation in amino acids in the blood because it's coming from the muscle, because the muscles become insulin resistant. Insulin can't defend the muscle protein. And now the muscle is just experiencing a higher degree of protein catabolism. And then it's leaking out its amino acids into the bloodstream. And so you'll have higher levels of amino acids in the blood because insulin, the muscles become insulin resistant. And now we've lost the anti-catabolic effect of insulin. So another kind of bit of a myth or mis, uh, misinformation. And one last thing I'll say, David, to shift the topic, and I won't go very far with it, is the misunderstanding of the nutrient lactate. People will say lactic acid, which doesn't exist in mammals. It's just the, it's, it's not this protein form. It's lactate. It's in no way contributing to acidemia or acidosis. 
or the burning of the muscle when it's intensely working. Um, it's lactate, and lactate is a totally unappreciated fuel. The brain will use lactate as a fuel. The, the other cells with mitochondria, which is virtually every cell in the body except red blood cells, can pull in lactate and actually burn it in the mitochondria like it would ketones for fuel. But again, the brain uses lactate very, very well, and the liver takes up most of the lactate to turn it back into glucose um, through this wonderful biochemical process that's called the Cori cycle, C-O-R-I. So lactate is a very misunderstood nutrient um, that it, it's mis it's it's maligned, um, but not not uh, not fairly. Well, one thing that is very consistent about, and I like how you're very deliberate in in what you say in regard to, and and we, we can talk about you have a you have a book that focuses heavily on the the various roles insulin play insulin plays in in the body, and it can be easy to get caught up in this information rabbit hole, if you will, and I don't say that in a negative way. I think rabbit hole. You know, it, it, it's like going into a, a, a dark corner of the internet where there's a lot of lies, but I mean that in a way of, of just educating oneself. So I should clarify. Um, it's a little easy to get, at least for me, to get a little fatalistic with this, to say, oh, you know, I've, I've, I've eaten this over the course of my lifetime, or to use a very bad analogy, I had that cookie or this thing like this, or, you know, my diet strayed. Um, but insulin resistance is, is something that is variable, and it's something that I know in the content you produce, you are working to educate people on how they can um, maybe make lifestyle or diet changes that reduce insulin or potentially even reverse some of the insulin resistance they may have undergone. What are some of those things? And look, everyone is individual. This, this podcast is not medical advice. I should give that disclaimer. Everyone knows I love disclaimers. But... Let's talk about insulin resistance. This is something that can be improved or addressed over the course of an adult lifespan through oh, yeah. dietary and lifestyle changes. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So insulin resistance, some, some of your listeners, um, you know, they might not be overly familiar with it. It is the single most common health disorder in the world, which is why I wrote a book on it, why we get sick. Anyone can go look it up and get it. Um, uh, it's the most common problem, and it, it it's it linked to it, it's linked to virtually every chronic disease. Uh, so it matters, and it is this. It, it is a combination of two problems that you will always get together. One, which is insulin isn't working as well at some cells of the body, and two, blood insulin levels are higher than they used to. Those together are what we call insulin resistance, and it is entirely a problem virtually of diet. The food we eat is the culprit or the cure. There are other inputs that come into this other noxious stimuli, but uh, and they matter, but not as much as, as diet. And they also can't be manipulated as rapidly and have as strong an impact as dietary changes. And you, you'd mentioned some of the low-hanging fruit, but that is just basically the consumption of refined starches and refined oils together. Those two together, which is the bulk of all foods people eat because most of the food we eat is coming from bags and boxes with barcodes. Uh, th th that is a that is a wonderful combination to make the body as insulin resistant as possible, but it is incredibly reversible. There, uh, a scientist, I will, in fact, I'll, I'll cite myself here. We published a paper about two years ago, maybe three years ago, where we took 11 women, this was in conjunction with a local clinic, 11 women who had just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And type 2 diabetes is essentially insulin resistance that's gone really far. That's so, so I say type 2 diabetes 
what I'm really saying is really bad insulin resistance. And at the time of their diagnosis, which is when this case study began, the, the clinical visit essentially was you can leave the office with a prescription for medications or you can leave with a prescription to change your diet and adopt a low-carbohydrate, high-fat, high-protein diet. That was really the simplest advice. No calorie counting, no fasting, no starvation. It was just low-carb, high-fat, high-protein. And in 90 days, David, these women in just 90 days, when they reported back, Every single one of them had a complete reversal in every clinical symptom of type 2 diabetes. There wasn't a, essentially in 90 days, they did not have type 2 diabetes anymore by any clinical definition. Not a single pill popped, not a single drug injected. It was just diet. Um, and, and so someone listening to this, if they are a little overweight, they have high blood pressure or they have they have um, infertility, erectile dysfunction in a guy or polycystic ovary syndrome in a woman. All of these are classic and st- strong evidence of insulin resistance. You have every reason to be hopeful. Literally within weeks, you can undo years of insulin resistance by just changing your diet. Now, easier said than done because when it comes to diet, we're talking about habits. And in some instances, I may even say addictions with food and habits with, with regards to foods. So it's an easy idea, but that doesn't mean it's easy to implement. Um, and, but, but a low carb, you know, controlling the carbs to focus on fruits and vegetables and cutting out the refined grains and other starches and sugars, and then being very liberal with proteins and fats, especially from animal sources and then from fruit sources when it comes with the fats, which is avocados, olives, and coconuts. Excellent. Well, I feel like we're only hitting the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the research you've done, the content you put out. And we really are because you put out an immense amount of content. Your book is one I would recommend a lot of people look into and we'll have information about how to find that in the podcast description and on the accompanying article. But just so folks also know if they're just listening in and they're not going to that podcast page so they can't miss it, where are the best places for people to follow along with your research, the content you're putting out, and also uh, at at the end of that, just restate the title of your book just so it's burned in people's memory. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks again, David. Uh, you guys, I just really am so impressed with the content you guys are putting out, and I'm delighted to uh, participate. Uh, people can connect with me and and see what I'm doing on social media is one way, and that's mostly through Instagram nowadays. I used to be more involved in Twitter, and just find Twitter to be an increasingly uncomfortable place. You're not and, the first guest to say that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm. I'm. It's really disappointing, though. It's such a shame um, that 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 tends to be happening. That trend is happening. So Instagram, people can find me there at Ben Bickman, PhD. And Bickman is just B-I-K-M-A-N, no C, B-I-K-M-A-N. And then I have some other, uh, or I mentioned the book we both did, Why We Get Sick. That's for sale anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere in some certain um, even retailers, uh, you know, actual stores will carry Wait, it as well. Th- those still exist? Bookstores? Yeah, I know. Wow, yeah. wow crazy. Yeah, not many, um, but the, some of them carry it as well. Why we get sick. And it's basically a primer on insulin resistance, what it is, why it matters, where it comes from, and what to do about it. Um, and then I mentioned my entrepreneurial efforts. And so, Pardon the, the the plug there. One of them is an online coaching platform, and that's Insulin IQ. And then the other, which is the one I'm more intimately involved with, is Health Code. And and people can go to that website at Get Health. And Health is spelled H L T H. We cut the vowels out just to make it a little more brief. H L T H. Get Health. 
com, And people can learn more about a low-carb meal replacement shake that I designed uh, and, and really working in this business with a couple of my older brothers. So it's just a small little family business. Um, and, and I regularly am contributing blog content to that as well that people can read about. Um, include One recent one was proteins and different quality of proteins, animal versus plant uh, proteins, and where people tend to get that wrong. Um, so yeah, get health, hlth.com. And that's it. So, so the, the Instagram, my book, and then those two um, entrepreneurial pursuits. Well, I'm glad you plugged because the worst thing we can have is the podcast guest who doesn't want to plug at the end. That's, <laughs> that's the whole point of the end of these episodes is so folks can learn more and follow along because they might have liked what you said and they're like, well, I want to dive in. So I do appreciate that. And there's absolutely no shame in doing that. That's kind of the point. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. It's always a pleasure. And I really do appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy on the entrepreneurial side, on the research side, and also you're an active professor. That takes some time as well. Um, So I really, really do appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, David. Really, this was a great time. Time well spent. Thank you.